there was a cloud, and at one time it was taken up from the tabernacle, which is a tent. Now, God commanded the tent be built, but he never commanded the temple. This is absolutely fascinating as we study Numbers chapter 10 today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are discovering the Bible. It is the most important book ever, and God has written this word for us so that we can understand it. Corey helps us understand it better. Corey? I'm going to be taking a look at the phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey, as it relates to the promised land. Ryan? Well, I have a question for us today, and that is, who was Moses' father-in-law? Because some passages say Jethro, but others say Reuel, and still others say Hobab. So we're going to see if we can figure this out a little bit later on in the program. I mean, did the guy have three names or was he three persons or what? We'll talk about that later. Janice? Marching Fearlessly is my segment title today. Numbers 10, verses 11 through 15. Now it came to pass on the twentieth day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time, according to the command of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to their armies. Over their army was Nashan, the son of Amminadab. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar. Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. Numbers chapter 10, Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 12 and 13 are the four chapters that we look at today as we continue going through the Bible in one year. Now, this is very exciting. The first time the camp of Israel is moved is highlighted actually in Numbers chapter 10. It was the 20th day of the second month in the second year when the cloud that normally rested over the tabernacle suddenly raised and moved, the people knew that it was time for them to move too. While this marks the first time of many that God would change Israel's location like this, is still very interesting to the modern reader. And it's interesting to me as well. What this cloud by day and fire by night exactly looked like, we don't know. But we can all agree it was a unique and special move of God. The passage says that the children of Israel started out for the first time according to the command of God by the hand of Moses. Now this is important because it is tempting for us to think of Moses as the leader of Israel when really God had taken his place as the king of the Israelite nation. Moses' leadership does set an important pattern for the prophesied Messiah and helps us understand the truth about God and how he leads and calls us even today. 
Now, the prophesied Messiah does show up. And when he shows up, he not only leads, but he shows us. And then he tells us something. We must follow him. As a result of that, we become people who were people of the way to Christians as we were first called in the book of Antioch, or rather in the place of Antioch, as highlighted in the book of Acts. So this is fascinating. Now get your Bible, get your Bible guide. The Bible is the most important book you'll ever read, the Bible guide. If you don't have your Bible guide, why not? I'm going to offer it to you. Call us or write to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and click on the Bible guide. It'll take you to a donate page, whatever God tells you. Thank you. And it'll, you can go straight to the page where you can download the Bible guide. Very important. Today, departure from Sinai. And Father, we pray today as we view this in Scripture, as we look at this, that we would hear what you're saying. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' wonderful name. And we said together, amen. Now, look at Numbers chapter 10, beginning with verse 11. This is important. It says, Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from above, the tabernacle of the testimony, that is the pinnacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys, and then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Isn't that fascinating? Now, this brings me to the first point. Listen carefully. The cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle to the wilderness of Paran. Now, sometimes God moves us even if we don't understand why. That's true. God moves us even if we don't understand why. And I'm somebody who has moved 21 times before I was the age of 22, almost every year. If you can imagine, or before I was the age of 25, that's absolutely true. And we have to understand that there are times when God has us on the move. And there are other times when God keeps us in one place. As of recently, I've been in Canada for over 30 years. Very important to remember that. And so, beloved, God moves us in different ways for different reasons. That's important. Numbers chapter 10, verse 13 says this. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. What do we mean by that? God led them out by the hand of Moses. As we closely follow the Lord, we are led by his Holy Spirit. As God fulfills his desire through our, oh, this is important, obedience. Now, there's a lot of times when we move and it has nothing to do with God. It's just us pontificating about going here and going there. But let me tell you something. When you get your life wrapped around the meaning of what God is doing, and you move according to that, then God suddenly gets you in line with the will of God and things begin to change. People come to know the Lord, things happen, things change. And let me tell you something. There have been several times I moved as myself and they weren't right. They were wrong. And I've had to say, Lord, forgive me. And there have been other times when I moved when that, that was what I was supposed to do. God moved me. And so we need to understand that no longer do we have a free choice just to go wherever we want. We must listen to what the Lord says. That's important. Now, let's go on because this gets good. 
Numbers 10, verse 14. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to the armies. Okay? Over their army was Nashon, son of Amminadab. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nathanael, the son of Zor. What in the world are we to make of this? The Israelites had a plan and a way to move. God had given them that. From the first to the last, they had a plan on how to move. Now, God is a God of order, not confusion or chaos. God is a God of order, not confusion and chaos. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there was a big move and everybody was all about just do, go to church and do whatever the Holy Spirit tells you and do whatever and become this and run around like that, scream like this and scream like that. God is not the author of confusion. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 13. We are not to follow confusion. We are to follow the word of the Lord. Listen to what God said, because God is speaking to the world, beloved. We need to hear what the Lord said. So many people have just gone and done whatever they felt like, whatever felt good to them. That's not, the, the way God moves is not by how we feel. God moves and we do, and then our feelings follow. Because the people who are of the Lord, their feelings will follow them. Signs and wonders will follow, not lead them, but follow them. And so this becomes important for us to hear. And so the people of Israel, they were shown how to move. God told them how to move. And so suddenly to, to somebody there it may look chaotic, but it really wasn't because God had showed them this tribe goes first, this tribe goes second, this tribe goes third, that tribe goes first. Because God had a way in which he showed them no confusion. This is how you move. Now, I think we need to pay attention to that because that's something we need to understand. God has an order for us, beloved. And confusion is not the order. Confusion is quite the opposite. But we need to understand that the Holy Spirit will do things we don't understand and we don't see and we don't realize. And they are unusual. But the Holy Spirit is unique and different. And so we need to consider this today as we go forward in learning more about the Word of God and learning more about the law of God, which he teaches to us through the book of Numbers. Jesus Christ spoke to us and told us not to be afraid, not to be troubled by these times. This is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of God's final reconciliation with the world. God is going to make things change in our lives. And this is very important. He has selected you and myself to live in this time. And I find that absolutely amazing. 
Today, you and I are going to be focusing in on Numbers chapter 13. It's in this chapter where Moses, you know, sends 12 men into the promised land as a delegation. Some people call it, you know, spies sent into the promised land. Uh, but this one is more of a delegation. And, and you know, they go to Hebron, which is really interesting because that's where the Cave of Machpelah was. So this is land that is owned by Israelites. You know, it was purchased by Abraham and here the patriarchs are buried. Uh, so there's this delegation and they go out to look at the land and they come back to Moses uh, and the Israelites and they give them, you know, most of them give a very negative report, not of the quality of the land. This land truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. You and I are going to be focusing on that phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey and trying to figure out what that means. First, let's take a look at the honey part. Honey is mentioned 55 times in the Bible and is directly linked to Israel by its biblical nickname, the land flowing with milk and honey. Until recently, however, it was unknown whether we should think of the Bible's honey references as bee honey or as the popular honey-like syrup derived from figs and dates. At least twice, the Bible's context makes it clear that bees' honey is in mind, but these times the stories feature wild honey. The problem was, scholars didn't have any direct evidence to prove that bees were kept for honey in biblical Israel. It was known that from very ancient times, surrounding cultures kept bees, and the value of honey and beeswax in the ancient Middle East is known from literary sources. An Egyptian pharaoh dating to just before the Exodus even describes taking hundreds of jars of honey as tribute from Canaan, so bee domestication must have been in the land before Israel took over. Excavations at Tel Rehov, a city on an important trade route next to the Jordan River and south of the Sea of Galilee, finally settled any question about biblical beekeeping. It was done. The excavation layer dating to the 10th and 9th centuries BC, biblically the time of Solomon and the first kings of the split kingdom, revealed an industrial apiary, a beehive installation meant to produce an abundance of honey and beeswax for sale. This massive apiary is believed to have housed around 180 beehives, though not all of them have survived until today as the city was destroyed by a massive fire caused either by an earthquake or a conqueror, destroying many of the stacked hives but preserving the apiary as a whole. Interestingly, this honey harvesting operation was located within the walls of a city in a populated area, meaning the residents of the city would have had to live with millions of bees in peak season. The hives themselves were long cylinders of unbaked clay. On one end, a small hole acted as the bee's doorway, and at the other, a clay lid with a handle gave access to the beekeepers. The hives were stacked on one another, arranged in neat rows, and the floor was dug down a few feet, likely to help keep it cool. There was a roof, at least over the hives, to keep them out of the sun. So this phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey, I mean, it sounds idyllic. It sounds very good. And that's because it's meant to. It's meant to mean a land that can sustain human life and sustain it really well. So, I mean, milk is a sustaining liquid, both in the animal kingdom and in the human kingdom. So if the animals and people are able to reproduce, there's a lot of milk. So this is both a figurative and a literal 
thing going on here in this phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey, and same with the honey aspect of it, whether you take this to mean uh, just specifically honey from bees. We now know, thanks to the excavations at Tel Rehov, that beekeeping was a thing in ancient Canaan and in ancient Israel, uh, but also date honey was a thing and date syrup was a thing. So whatever way you look at it, this is a very accurate description of the land of Canaan. One of the things that's interesting is that the, the land itself being with, filled with milk and honey was, mm -hmm. was an explanation of the, the fruitfulness of the land. Yeah, it's able to support human life. And the, But the idea was that you just didn't walk in and take it, but mm -hmm. you had the work. Mm -hmm. And that's what God does in the Word of God. He tells humankind, you have to work. Mm -hmm. This is what he told Adam and Eve. This is what he told before sin. This is what he told everybody. This, you have to work. You have to do it. So, and, and that's important for us to hear because a lot of people just want to sit back and let the government give them all the money. That's not how this works. Christians know and understand that if you believe God and you understand who God is, then you understand what he requires of us, that we have to work and for his kingdom and also for ourselves. So that becomes very important, right? Yeah, well, today I'm dealing with an alleged Bible contradiction and it involves Numbers chapter 10, verse 29, which identify identifies Moses' father-in-law as Reuel. Now, Exodus 2 also identifies him as Reuel, though in Exodus chapters 3, 4, and 18, he isn't called Reuel, but Jethro. And then in Judges 4, 11, he's called Hobab. So it seems we're facing an identity crisis. So just who was Moses' father-in-law, really? Well, let's study. After 40 years in Egypt, Exodus chapter 2 records Moses' unexpected flight to Midian after slaying an Egyptian foreman. There he meets and marries Zipporah, whose father's name is Reuel. However, in subsequent chapters, Moses' father-in-law is called Jethro, not Reuel. Further complicating the issue is that later on, in Judges 4.11, the father-in-law of Moses is said to be neither Jethro nor Reuel, but rather Hobab. Thus, the Bible seems to be at odds with itself on this point, as it leaves Moses' father-in-law with an apparent identity crisis. In truth, however, anyone claiming that the Bible is in contradiction regarding this man's identification would be committing the logical fallacy known as bifurcation. Also known as a false dilemma or an either-or fallacy, this is when it is assumed that there are only two exclusive options, when in fact there is a third possibility. For instance, in the case of Moses' father-in-law, the critic has assumed that one person cannot ever be called by more than one name. Either a person is called A or B. Yet there are many examples in the Bible of people having more than one name. Some of these include Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, Jacob, Israel, Esau, Edom, Simon, Peter, and Saul, Paul. In fact, it still remains common in our present age to have more than one name. It seems to be no different with Moses' father-in-law. That being said, a careful reading of the scriptures in question reveals that not all of these names belong to him. While there's no question surrounding his identity as Jethro, a name that means excellency and may have actually been a title rather than a proper name, the names Reuel and Hobab could not both have belonged to him since they were two different people. As Numbers 10.29 clarifies, Reuel was Hobab's father. The question at large is, was Jethro father Reuel or son Hobab? Believe it or not, a convincing case can be made for either. 
For example, Judges 4.11 plainly identifies Hobab as the father-in-law of Moses. Of course, this presents a challenge to Exodus 2, which clearly identifies Reuel as his wife's father. However, it is biblically and exegetically possible that father here means grandfather, meaning Reuel would be the grandfather and Hobab would be the father, Jethro. On the other hand, it's also possible that Judges 4.11's identification of Hobab as Moses' father-in-law is a mistranslation of the original text. As one scholar points out, both father-in-law and brother-in-law have the same three consonants in Hebrew, and therefore here would be better translated Hobab, the brother-in-law of Moses. If this be the case, then Jethro would be father Reuel, and Hobab would be his son, as well as brother-in-law to Moses. Whichever name belongs to Jethro, it is absolutely certain that there is no scriptural contradiction whatsoever. Well, I hope that it wasn't too confusing to follow. It's one of those topics that might require your own study. But to put it very, very simply, most scholars believe that Jethro's other name was Reuel. And even the Jewish Roman historian Josephus identifies Reuel as one of the names of Jethro. So probably Jethro's other name was Reuel and his son's name was Hobab. But regardless, to claim that there's a contradiction here is, as I said, a logical fallacy known as bifurcation, otherwise known as the either-or fallacy, which is when it's assumed that only two options are possible, when in fact there's a third option. So in this case, what the critic is really claiming is that this man can either have this name or he can have that name. But the reality is, is that he can have more than one name, which is the third option that they failed to consider. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because uh, if you are challenging the Bible and you don't believe in the Word of God and you're trying to find out ways to, to trip it up, uh, then you need to open up your mind to the different ways that people do this and critics do this as well. But it's important for us to understand that the Word of God has stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. And that test of time is, uh, you know, through thousands of years of being challenged and everything else. It stood the test of time. Janice. Marching fearlessly. That's what I titled my segment today. I'm going to look at Numbers chapter 10, but looking back at Numbers chapter 9, really the cloud and the fire of God uh, to the Israelites was really uh, laid out for us. We can see that the cloud and the fire were symbols of God's will to the Israelite people. There was nothing predictable in the movement or the settling of the cloud. It was all dependent on God's sovereignty. So now as we move into Numbers chapter 10, we learn about the two silver trumpets and the calling and what that meant to two calling versus one calling. Really interesting reading here. But then as we get down to verse 11, it's their departure from Sinai. Can you imagine? This is the first time they would have had seen movement from the cloud. They moved from the um, uh, departure from Sinai here into the wilderness of Paran. What an exciting time. So we see their first move. The cloud was taken up. Now, remember, the cloud was a symbol of God's presence. It was a symbol of God's protection. And it was a symbol of God's guidance to the Israelite people. So the point that I want to make today is that they could fearlessly march into the unknown because of God's faithfulness. Did you hear me? 
those people, because of what this cloud represented to them, of God's will, of God's sovereignty, it was his presence, his protection, and his guidance. When that cloud lifted and began to move and everything, God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order. And he had laid everything out for them, even the calling and the sounding of the trumpets, the way things had to be packed up. Everything was in order and logical, and the people could march fearlessly, even though they didn't know exactly what they would encounter or what they would find. It was moving out into the unknown. And it made me think how important it is for those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be fearless then as we move ahead in our lives with the choices that we make when we involve the Lord Jesus Christ in the decisions that we make. And you know what? We're not always going to get it right because we're human and we make mistakes. But if we do what the Lord tells us to do, and a very good scripture to focus on in that area of our lives is in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You'll hear us quote it a lot this year, but it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Acknowledge God and God shall direct your paths. It goes on in verse 7 and 8 and it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Fear not meaning be afraid. Don't be afraid but understand who God is in reverence. It's that reverence that he is God. He's not our buddy in the sky. He's not a genie in a bottle. He is God. He's the creator of the universe and he's interested in every move that you make. So come to him. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, reverence him and depart from evil. Turn away from the things that keep you away from him. Those things that distract you. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. So I just, as as the Israelites knew, when that cloud lifted, they were able to walk fearlessly into the unknown because they knew that they were following God the same that we can be as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. We follow Him. We don't ask, make our decisions and then tell Him to join us. We follow Him first. So let's do that so that we can also look to our future in fearlessness because God is in control. And I think it's important to remember, a lot of people do that. I do that from time to time. Oh, I say, God, yeah, me too. I'm going this way, follow me. Yeah. And then it doesn't work. It doesn't and I work say, God, out. how come? And God said, well, you went that way. I'm going this way. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. So we've got to let our decisions be affected by the influence of Jesus Christ. That becomes very important. And his word speaks to us about who he is and what he asks us to do. His word is very unique. And so that's what we need to project here from this particular Bible Discovery TV program.
Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you being here. And let us pray today as we focus on this program, the end of it. And Lord, we've talked about the book of Numbers and we've talked about how you've spoken to the people throughout time. But help us now and teach us to follow you. I need to follow you with all my heart. I need to follow you with all my strength. And I need to follow you with all my soul. Help me to do that today in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen.